the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All of us, from time to time, have struggled with within our Christian walk, and that is hearing the voice of God. Um, We are told in John 10 and 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And for all of us that say, gee, I... I just wish I could hear God's voice more distinctly in life. It would be great if there was the loud, thundering, booming voice out of heaven that shakes you to your innermost being. And yet more often than not, when God speaks, he speaks with that still, small voice. Why is that exactly? Well, our next guest has written a book on the very topic called Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere, newly published by Kriegel Publications. And its author, our guest today, he is the founding director of Kids of the Heart, author of a number of other best-selling books, including Is Sunday School Destroying Our Kids? Samuel Williamson. Great to have you on the program. Hi, Craig. Thanks very much for welcoming, for welcoming me. I really appreciate it. It would honor. be great if God spoke in this loud, thundering, booming voice that we could know instantly, aha, there is the voice of God instructing me and making the right choices and decisions along life's highway. But in fact, God chooses other methodology. We know certainly that he can speak to us through his word. He can speak to us through others. But that sense of hearing that still, small voice directly inform ourselves, that seems to be elusive for a lot of Christians. Why is that? I think it is elusive, and I think part of the reason, Craig, is because people have this expectation that God only speaks to, you know, the high and mighty, the saints, you know, you know, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, or Billy Graham, or Mother Teresa. And I think it's a false expectation because I think Scripture is very clear when you look at all the heroes of the faith and, and, their, and their foibles. I I think it's very clear that God speaks to us because of his greatness and not because of our greatness. And and we can have a confidence because his greatness is so great and our greatness is so small. But he he speaks to us because of his greatness. All right. So toward that end, then, um, part of it then has to do with our sense of, of, of perspective on our relationship. If God is speaking to us in and out of his greatness, uh, that would also require me to understand the nature of or the balance of the relationship that I have with God, would it not? It absolutely does. And, you know, the scripture is filled with metaphors that God himself uses to teach us about our relationship with him. And he says that we are the sheep, here's the shepherd. He says that we are the servants, he is the master. We're the subjects, he is the king. But it also says we are the children, he is the father. You know, it breathtakingly intimately, he says we are the spouse and he is the bridegroom. But every one of these metaphors is a human relationship. And, you know, Craig, the essence of relationship, if you think of your, uh, of your family, of your spouse, of your friends, the essence of relationship is communication. And it's two-way communication. And I think when we read Scripture, Scripture 
overflows with the idea of God wanting to speak to us, wanting us to recognize his voice. It's, it's the essence of Christianity, a relationship with God. And I think God promises and mm, invites us to have a, a, a communicative, a, a, a conversational relationship with him. All right, now let's talk about that because that suggests, as you talk about relationship, and anybody I think with with half a mind understands that in order for there to be any success in a relationship, there needs to be that sense of give and take, and that's true of marriage relationships. It's true if you want to get along with uh, with your siblings or get along with your uh, your offspring. Uh, but with that said, it, it it it's kind of a curiosity in that uh, so often when we we think about conversation with God, what we really think about or engage in is monologue. And yet what God wants is dialogues. It's not just a matter of of God hearing from us and usually our laundry list of all the things that we want or our complaints, but then hearing back from God in return. And I think a lot of people find getting into that place where we have a sense that it's not a monologue, but rather a dialogue with God. That seems to be elusive because it requires upon us as well to be listening as well as talking. Absolutely, Craig, absolutely. And I would say that the few times that we especially want to hear him is the big times of decisions in our life, like, you know, should I become a doctor or a lawyer or a business person? Should I become a radio host, you know, or should I marry this person or that person? I think that we're, we typically mostly hope for God for the major decisions of our life. But, Craig, I don't know about anything about your relationship with your father or your parents. But, but let me ask you a question of your fondest memory of your parents. Uh, you know, if you can think back over your whole life, was it times that they lectured to you or was it times when they just talked to you? Oh, I think it's very clear. I mean, all of us remembering our, our childhood years recall a lot of lectures. Uh, and yet, as, as profound as those moments <laughs> might have been, uh, my, my dad, who, uh, who went to be with the Lord, I still, at 8 o'clock on Sunday evenings, pause, and there's that sense of, of uh, that gap. Because yeah. while we talked throughout the week at various times, uh, 8 o'clock Sunday evening seemed to be the time when the week was over with, the weekend was over with, and we had a chance to get on the phone for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it took, and just dialogue, just converse back and forth, and he'd tell his stories, and I would tell mine, and, and I, I cherish those moments probably more so than the lectures. <laughs> of course, absolutely, and mine's the same way. My dad and I, you know, high school might have been a little tougher, but I mean, I, for, for, for 30 years, my dad and I had a wonderful conversational relationship, and, and that's what I remember, and even with my wife, you know, my wife and I, we, we went on our 30th anniversary to... Italy a few years ago, but really the, the heart and soul of our relationship is when we just sit after dinner and have a cup of coffee and talk together. And it's not even, you know, earth-shattering discussions, it's just normal discussions, and I believe this is what God wants for his people. In fact, how are we going to recognize God's voice in, in, in the storm of a terrible decision if we haven't learned to recognize his voice in the calm wind of a you know, a, an evening breeze. Mm. We, we really need to recognize God's voice in a conversation. If we're going to learn to recognize his voice in those 
very desperate times when we have to make a hard decision. There is a reason why, and, and God certainly in his infinite power could choose to use the loud, thundering voice from the heavens, as we all uh, sort of think of, you know, VR experience in the movies. And yet God, I think, purposefully has chosen to instead speak through, as we see articulated in Scripture, through the still, small voice. And I'm going to ask you why you think that is and what we can learn from that when we come back to more of our conversation. Samuel Williamson with us today. The book, Hearing God in Conversation. How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. The new book, by the way, newly published by Kriegel Publications. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as you can order directly through Samuel's website at beliefsoftheheart.com. A brief time out. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation, and Samuel Williamson, our guest today, his new book, Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Now, Samuel, God being God, he can choose to communicate by any means he desires. We'll recall a time when he chose to communicate through a burning bush, as uh, Moses had the experience. Uh, we, We know that he could open up the heavens with a thunderous voice, but instead, for the most part, for most believers, um, rather than the loud, thundering voice that we would know as it shook us to our very core that it was clearly the voice of God, instead God chooses to speak in that that still small voice, as Scripture tells us. Why is that? Is that is that? It's got to be. Pur- God is a very purposeful God. There's got to be a reason behind that. I, I think there's two reasons. Craig, and I think the first is we're all familiar with the passage in First Kings, I think it's 19, but it might be 20, where God speaks to Elijah out of a still small voice. But the background of that is Elijah has just been involved in one of the greatest miracles God does in the Old Testament. You know, there's this big contest between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God, Elijah, and Elijah builds this. You know, he puts he puts together an altar and he puts together the wood on it. He puts a sacrifice on it, and God sends a fiery bolt down from heaven, burns up the sacrifice and the wood and the water and the stones and even the earth, and nobody changes. I mean, Elijah is expecting the people to rise up against Ahab and Jezebel. You know, if not rise up, at least he's expecting some, some protesters out front saying, we want the Lord, you know, we want the Lord. But nothing happens. And, and Elijah becomes terribly depressed, and he goes down to Mount Sinai. And that's where, it's very interesting, God says, an earthquake came by, but there was no, but God was not in the earthquake. A whirlwind came by, and God was not in the earthquake, in the whirlwind. And a fire came by, and God was not in the fire. And the thing that's so funny is that when God spoke to Moses, he spoke out of the fiery bush. So we spoke out of fire. When God spoke on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, he spoke out of an earthquake. And when God spoke to Job, he did speak out of a whirlwind. So it's not that God doesn't speak in those things. But I think the deliberate contrast with this huge, spectacular miracle and not changing people's hearts is part of God's point when he finally says, and then God spoke in a still small voice. I don't think the spectacular changes us, Craig. I mean, I wish I could say if I had something spectacular would change me, 
But I really think it's the still, small, quiet, conversational voice of God every day that changes my heart. And, and I would think the big miracles do, but you know, Jesus did all kinds of miracles and the Pharisees didn't change their minds. And, and so I, I really do think God is saying there, there's a part of us humans, maybe us humans in the Western world especially, there's a part of us that wants the spectacular and the miraculous. And I believe in the spectacular and miraculous. Please don't misunderstand me. But I think the thing that changes my heart is when I sit in my chair and I hear God say, you know, Sam, I think you were ignoring your wife. I think you should go repent to her. And it's a quiet, calm voice that has a steady assurance in his voice. And so I think God really, I think God has an, has an invitation. So my first reason that God speaks out of the still small voice instead of the spectacular is I think that's the way humans work. I would say the second reason is I think God likes us to seek Him. And sometimes when we speak, seek the spectacular, we're, we're hoping for an emotional experience more than just to be touched by the hand and the heart and the tongue of God. So he wants us to seek him. I'm sorry for that long answer, Greg. I really appreciate your guidance. No, it's an appropriate answer, and I think it also puts things in perspective, and that is to recognize, too, that we serve a holy and righteous God. Amen. Um, Amen. That, I'm really serious. That 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 sense of, and I think we've 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 lost this in in the modern day world. That that sense of, for example, what it meant to be a priest to enter into the holy of holies, right? right. And that tremendous sense of of respect and reverence to realize that the priest was entering into the very presence of God. Uh, people forget that so much so, um, and, and Catholics listening will appreciate this, um, a bell is rung uh, during the consecration of the host uh, during Mass, and um, a bell was also um, uh, part of uh, what happened during the, the sacrifice that would take place inside of the Holy of Holies. And a rope was tied around the ankle of the priest. Absolutely. Should, should the people priest be found with sin and God strike him dead as being unfit to be in his presence and to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel so that they could literally pull the priest out. Because if they went in there, they would be struck. Exactly right. So I think we've <laughs> lost that sense of, of, of awe in the presence of God and in realizing that God doesn't have to raise his voice to us. He is God. Well, and you know, the one time that God did handwriting on the wall, you know, we all talk about it, just what handwriting on the wall. The one time God wrote on the wall, the message basically was, King Belshazzar, you're going to die tonight. <laughs> I think I can live without handwriting on the wall tonight. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're right. And the other notion here, too, and I learned this years ago in, in debate, um, we have a tendency, human beings, uh, we saw this uh, just last night. You'll probably see it again on Sunday during the debates. As we're trying to, out of frustration, get our point across, we tend to think if we lay, raise our voices, you'll hear us. Yeah, right. And yet, exactly. I learned many, many years ago that if you really want to get the most important point across, don't raise your voice. Instead, lower your voice. 
and people will lean in and pay more attention. And I think perhaps God is using the same principle with us. He wants us to pay attention, to recognize who he is in the splendor and glory of all of his grace and righteousness and holiness and realize that he does care. And not only does he care, not only does he want to hear from us, but he also wants us to hear from him as we engage in that that dialogue or that conversation, uh, as you call it in the title of the book, Samuel, so that in and through that, uh, we can not only recognize his voice, voice, but also walk in a deeper level of fellowship and pure relationship with Tim that perhaps a lot of us have never never taken it to that level, never really experienced. I agree with you completely. I, I, you know, Christianity is about relationship. And, and relationship, the heart and soul relationship is really the normal life. It's, it's not... The spectacular is great. You know, don't don't deny me any of the spectacular. But the heart and soul of a relationship is just the normal, everyday, faithful talking and being together. And and really, that's what makes life rich. And I think that's what God is inviting us into. I, I believe God wants us to hear his voice every day. Almost every day. There's, there's times where he might be silent because he can't tell us something. But I, I really believe that God has something for us and that... As you're talking about, he wants he wants us to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies because the, the temple curtain was torn. That's right. So that we can enter back into a relationship with him that, that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, we can probably talk to a lot of wives out there who would say their husbands never learned to listen and perhaps vice versa. Uh, God, I think. Please don't call my wife. (laughs) She's online, too, you say? I'm sorry. Uh, I I think, though, that that we can also uh, learn a lot from that, that that God perhaps would observe that we've never learned to listen to him. We talk a lot about wanting to hear from God, but do we really want to hear from God? Do we want to not only be vulnerable at that level? But take the time to walk in the fellowship and to have the kind of of intimacy with God that he really wants, not only of us, but for us. It's a compelling read and can be a life-changing one for you. Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Newly published by Kriegel Publishers. You'll find it available, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and at Samuel's website, beliefsoftheheart.com. That's beliefsoftheheart.com. And our thanks to Samuel Williamson for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Know us, the baby boomer generation. Those born between 1946 and 1964. 76 million all told. And as that group of Americans reaches retirement age, sometimes even younger, 10,000 a day become eligible for retirement. It's commonly referred to by retirement planning experts as the grain of America. But of course, with this huge number of Americans that are getting older come all the things that attend older age, disability, illness, just the process of growing older. We are seeing an explosion in home caregiving, and it's for many reasons, many for very good altruistic reasons that families see the value and honor in keeping a loved one at home. We certainly did that with my grandmother when she was 
not really capable of staying by herself anymore. We never really thought that a so-called rest home, retirement center or such was appropriate because we wanted her to live out her years in her home and with her family. And by the grace of God, we were successful at accomplishing just that. Still growing numbers in America today that perhaps um, never thought about buying long-term care insurance, mistakenly thought they had it when they didn't, find out that something has happened. It could be uh, the product of growing older, just could be illness, disease, or an accident that causes a loved one to now be confined at home, and suddenly you find yourself in the position of being a caregiver. And while initially it sounds like you're just simply doing your duty, after a while... The days turn into weeks, turn into months, in some cases turn into years. And as we learn, many of the people that do the caregiving wind up, while certainly doing a great and honorable thing, wind up shortening their own lives. How can we make life a bit better, a bit easier for caregivers, many of whom feel like they have no hope? Joining me now is Peter Rosenberger. He is founder of Caregivers with Hope. And, Peter, great to have you on the program. First, let's kind of put this in context, if you would, by sharing a bit of your own story with your spouse, Gracie. Well, Craig, thank you for having me. And um, it has been a journey for me. I've been doing this now in my 30th year. I met my wife a couple of years after she had had a horrible accident, and we met at college. She had returned to college, and, you know, I saw that she limped, and I knew that she had had a wreck, and I saw that she had some scars on her lower legs particularly, and uh, didn't, but I didn't really have any frame of reference of what it was like to be in a relationship with someone who was hurt. She'd already had 20 operations by the time I met her, uh, but we were young and optimistic and, and, and both very much in love, and quite truthfully, Craig, she's a babe. You know, and so I was just thinking, this this girl's a babe. And then I then I heard her sing, and and I knew that that the soul that was there was just somebody that I wanted to care for for the rest of of our life together. And I had no idea. I was just as dumb as a box of rocks when it came to this sort of thing. And uh, to give you a, a fast forward here, we're up to now that I can count seventy eight surgeries. Now that's not all the procedures. That's just surgeries. She gave up both of her legs in the 90s. She's had more than $9 million worth of medical bills. It's probably closer to 10 or 11 now. Uh, 60-plus doctors. I stopped counting at 62 years ago, and she's had a dozen more come on since then, I think. So it's just it just keeps escalating. Seven different uh, insurance companies and 12 different hospitals where she's been treated. So this has been a medical nightmare. Uh, that has never plateaued. We've had seasons where things are okay and it's not quite as dire. We do some fun things together, but then we have just constant grind of, of issues that are going on. My message is all about stewardship for the caregiver. And I have to realize that I didn't do this to my wife. I didn't break her, and I can't unbreak her. I can't fix this, and God has me here for a much different purpose. This challenge, you know, when uh, we exchange vows at the altar, it's uh, in sickness and in health, and we r- kind of rattle through that. And 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 we like the uh, we like the living and the health part, the uh, sickness and the death to us part portion. We really don't give much context to. And you know, in all fairness, we're young, we're starting out a new life together with uh, our loved ones, so we're probably not thinking about how things may end. And yet, inevitably, we know that everything has a 
beginning, a middle, and an end. And and for a lot of people, that uh, maybe suddenly there's just that sense of, oh my goodness, I I don't recall signing up for this. Well, and they did. And, and that's just the bottom line. They did. And now some of the people that are doing this are not doing it for a spouse. They're doing it for uh, a parent or they're doing it for a cousin or a brother or a neighbor. Or there's just there, there's all kinds of things. Uh, I, I spend a, a good bit of time talking with uh, people in the homosexual community that are taking care of somebody that's a, that's a friend, a neighbor, a partner, or whatever, that they didn't have any kind of vows or anything. They're just in this situation. Uh, it, it's it's everywhere. It's affecting everybody. If you notice the other day uh, when um, uh, the Denver Broncos won the won the game, the, that's the first time that the AFC Championship trophy has been accepted by a caregiver because Bolin has uh, uh, the owner has Alzheimer's and his wife accepted it. It's everywhere and it's affecting everybody from every kind of walk of life. Whether you're married, whether you're, you're just neighbors, whether you're in it's, you're living together, it doesn't matter. It's everywhere. If you love somebody, you're going to be a caregiver. If you live long enough, you're probably going to need one. All right, let's talk a bit about uh, this sudden shifting of roles. And I say shifting of roles because oftentimes we're, we're accustomed with, uh, you know, we're raising a family, raising kids, so uh, uh, doing things like fixing meals and bathing them and changing diapers. Well, we get all of that. We also get about the fact that they're eventually going to grow out of that process and be able to care for themselves. Sadly, that's not true in all cases. And when we talk about caregiving, particularly for the elderly, we understand that the, the real end scenario is probably going to be deterioration, not the hopes of suddenly getting better. And so, you you know, you begin to sick, you get sick at 84, and by the time you're 90, you're healthy as can be again. It doesn't work out that way. No, it doesn't. And you don't also have with uh, families with special needs children. Mm. Uh, my brother has a daughter with cerebral palsy. She's been this way uh, from birth, and she's basically like taking care of a two-year-old, and she's 27. So you're dealing with uh, so many different dynamics in here. And what, I, what I've found, Craig, is this. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, but what I've found is the task of caregiving, uh, whether it's changing diapers, whether it's making meals or bathing and all those kinds of things, those things can be tedious and even unpleasant. But that's not really the heartache of a caregiver, I have found. Most people can kind of punch through those things. The heartache of the caregiver is that there doesn't seem to be any end in sight, that this thing could go on for, for so long and that they are losing themselves in this journey. Uh, caregivers suffer from three eyes, Craig. They lose their independence, they lose their identity, and they become isolated. And it's in that craziness that most caregivers start to despair and, and start to, to struggle. Those late night conversations with the ceiling fan and, and you're just wondering, is this ever going to end? Am I ever going to be able to kind of get, get on with my life? And it slowly dawns on a lot of caregivers that this is our life. This is it. This is my life. And this has been my life for 30 years. And I've had to learn that I can live a healthier life in this. I could be happy in this or I can be miserable in this. That, that's my choice. You know, I can't choose in, on the, the painful parts of life. We're going to have pain no matter how it comes. But I can choose on how I'm going to respond to it. And that's what I'm trying to learn as a caregiver each and every day myself. And, and I've also learned that healthy caregivers make better caregivers. And I can't simply throw myself recklessly at taking care of my wife 
with no regards to my own healthiness. And if I don't, if, if I do that, I end up compromising the one person standing between her and even further disaster, which is the caregiver. So there, there's a complex set of emotional challenges that go on with this, and that's what I'm speaking to these caregivers that are in the, the valley of the shadow of death, and it is a long valley. But you don't have to be miserable in it. We're as happy or as miserable as we want to be. So a lot of it has to do with a matter of perspective and attitude, and I want to talk a bit about that when we come back, because, you know, truth be told, this is oftentimes lonely, very stressful. I recall when my godfather went through this with my godmother, who had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, She had a very difficult, very painful last three, three and a half years, and it got to the point in the last year or so of her illness, she did not want to be left alone for even a nanosecond. He was not only her primary caregiver, but she demanded that he be in her side for every second. I mean, he could have a neighbor come over to watch her just to give him an opportunity to go to the store. And as he is driving to the store, the poor thing would be on the telephone, on the cell phone, calling him, wanting to know when he was coming back. So dealing with those realities, how do we go about having the right perspective on this, the right attitude, so that indeed you as a caregiver can survive. We'll come back to that part of the equation. Peter Rosenberger, founder of Caregivers with Hope, information by the way on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Peter Rosenberger, our guest. He is founder of Caregivers with Hope on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. You know, Peter, as you know from your own experience, this can be physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, oftentimes financially draining to the point where a lot of people say, Hope, I, I don't see any way out. For me, hope is, and I've heard caregivers at kind of the end of their physical, mental, emotional, relational rope say, for me, the only way out, the only relief is when my spouse passes. How do you go about changing your attitude, your mentality regarding this this challenge that you're facing and and be able to find hope? Well, there, <clears throat> there's several things. Uh, hope, hope for the Caregiver, and that's the name of my, my new book, is not hearts and rainbows and unicorns. It is the conviction that we as caregivers can live a calmer, healthier, and even more joyful life, even while dealing with grim realities. Now, everything in Scripture tells me that that's the case for us in our Christian walk. You know, Paul said this clearly over and over. You know, we see through the glass darkly right now. We don't see what's going on. We don't always know. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm I'm going to prepare a place for you. that's That's our hope. Our hope is not in eliminating all the unpleasant things of this earth. That, that is not our hope. That is beyond my pay grade. Look down at your hands. If you don't see nail prints, this ain't yours to fix. Mm. You know, that's not our hope, is that we're some, somehow going to live a pain-free life. Our hope is knowing that God has spared us as believers through something for, from something far worse than multiple amputations and Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's and, and 30 years' worth of, of chronic pain. He spared us from something far greater than that. And our hope is that as He is working out His purposes in all these things, we can trust Him with that knowledge of, that He has saved us. He has rescued us from something far worse than this, 
and he is building this thing in a way that we just can't see. He's weaving his redemption through stuff that we just can't understand. And that's what gives us a new perspective so that we can look at the things in our life with trials and knowing that his perfect will is being worked out. And, and Romans 8.28 comes into play here. You know, for I know these things. He, Paul didn't say, for I'm, I'm guessing. He said, I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That's our confidence. So when we're looking at somebody who we're having to, we can't reach anymore because they're impaired through pharmaceuticals or dementia or whatever, we can love them tapped in because we're tapped in the inexhaustible love of God through Christ. And you said before we went to the break, you know, that, that struggle that we have that when, when they won't let go and, and the, 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 your godfather was trying to go to the grocery store and, and, and your godmother kept calling. This is what I want to tell my fellow caregivers. They're going to do stuff that, that's going to absolutely drive us up the wall sometimes. They're not doing it to us. They're just doing it. And we don't have to take everything so personally. They don't want to be sick. They don't want to deal with dementia. They don't want to deal with chronic pain. They don't want to be doing all this stuff. We just happen to be the closest person to them. But we can learn to let some of that go and not take it all personally. You know, what is it Mother Teresa once said? You know, bless you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the privilege of serving you in your many horrible disguises. Mm. And, and you know, you can, you can be all bent out of shape about this. But my goal for caregivers is that when we do stand at a grave, and one day, most likely, we will. And that's the goal, by the way, is that for a caregiver to stand in the grave, not be in the grave first. And that's a hard thing to say, but that's the reality. But that we stand there without clenched fists, without fists that are clenched at, at our loved one, at families and friends that didn't maybe help the way we wanted them to, at... at at ourselves for what we could have, would have, should have done, or even at God, that we can learn to live peacefully with these things. Even if your loved one is not dealing with all this stuff, you're not living a trouble-free life. Everybody's got some, something going on. This is just a little bit more accelerated, and it requires us to, to bend our will into the will of God more and faster than we probably would otherwise. Is part of this, Peter, sort of the, the natural flesh inclination to push back against um, this aspect of the reality of life? I, I, I often, when, when there's been debates over things like, uh, oh, we want to legalize, uh, say, uh, physician-assisted suicide, because we, we refer to this as death with dignity. And I, and I often think to myself, well, wait a minute, since when is death dignified? Uh, the deterioration of our body and going through pain and agony and all of that stuff, there's nothing dignified about that. Why don't we focus on living, living with dignity? And death, sadly, is a product of man's sin nature. It's our fallen condition. Is it, is it helpful for the caregiver to be reminded of that, or are we just kind of pushing back against the reality of the grave and maybe our own sense of, of mortality? Well, I think what happens is, is we, we, are, we are screaming out for relief. And so we, we rush to things like, uh, you know, euthanizing, things like that, and, and so forth. We're just screaming out for relief. And, and I, I've taken a different path. I mean, again, I've, I've been doing this for, for three decades. I've been doing it since the first Cold War. <laughs> but uh, you, you learn to accept that maybe relief is not the thing that we're supposed to be seeking so much, is learning to trust God in this. And we place our scared hand in his scarred hand and learn to say, okay, well, how do I deal with this today? See, nobody can do this for a lifetime, Craig, but anybody can do it for 24 hours. 
And that's really kind of how we as caregivers have to learn to live. You can only start screaming and crying and praying and, and God bail me out of this, God bail me out of this, God get me out of this, or the government get me out of this, somebody get me out of this. You can only do that for so long before that becomes kind of tedious. And you have to learn to say, okay, how do I be sustained in this? And your prayer changes. God, sustain me in this. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. So instead of focusing on our suffering, focus instead on our serving. Well, exactly. And, and, and focus on what God is doing in the midst of these things. You know, you go back and look at Solzhenitsyn after he got out of the Russian prison. And he said, you know, bless you prison for the change you've made in my life. I mean, something happened to him in that prison. Corey Tin Boone. You know, uh, I could just go down the list of, of people, Victor Frankl and all these other people who experienced life on a much greater level in the midst of some very, very harsh, harsh thing. Nelson Mandela, he went into prison almost as a terrorist and came out a statesman. And there's a point where we walk through these suffering, we walk through these bleak things, but if we are willing to, to go inward and to be changed in a healthy direction through this thing, we find that we, we can experience a, a quality of life that we thought was unattainable. There's beauty everywhere. There's excitement everywhere. There's joy everywhere. But sometimes we allow these things to obfuscate our view. Because this does affect us, like you said, our health, our emotions, our lifestyle, our profession, our money. Everything about this is affected. But is that necessarily a bad thing, and is it causing us to act like jerks? See, I, I'm from the mindset that, that this does not cause character defects. It amplifies what's already there, mm. and it gives us an opportunity to deal with this in a healthy manner if we so choose. And the question then becomes, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, it's all about stewardship. How can I be the best steward for my wife? How can I be the best steward for me? What is the best choice for the unit? And as your godfather found out, that sometimes he had to get away. And he has to recognize that it's more important for him to have moments of respite and healthiness, and he's just going to have to not answer the phone. So that he can be a healthy person. She needs him healthy. And people that are in pain or people that are diseased or whatever, impaired, they can't always see that. And so it's up to the caregiver to make those unilateral decisions without guilt, recognizing that they're, doing, they're loving them better when they're becoming healthier as an individual. And, of course, the irony is we, we also sometimes, I think, Peter, focus on our inconvenience, the, the difficulty, the trial that we are facing, and we perhaps, as close as we are to the situation, uh, cause our our perspective to become very distant, and by that I mean we forget about the fact that that individual who was in the bed doesn't want to be there, didn't ask for this, doesn't prefer this, doesn't see this as a better option, would much rather be up and about and living life as opposed to being bedridden or dependent upon another person to do everything from take them to the bathroom, to change their diapers, to shower them, feed them, shave them, all of that. Um, we sometimes forget that. And, and to remember that when they do on occasions lash out. When they do get upset, it's only at the closest person because they're really looking at their circumstance and their situation. And maybe because we're, we're so close, we lose eyesight of that. It's very easy to do. That's where the flashpoints come as a caregiver. And, you know, when I get in those points, I, it, it's hard to push a wheelchair with clenched fist. Mm -hmm. I've tried it. It doesn't work. <laughs> you, can't be, you can't be that hacked off and try to push a wheelchair. 
And, and you know, I can't, if I'm going to change a dressing on my wife, I'd rather do it with, with tears on my cheek than with my teeth grinding, you know? And I think it helps for me to remember how much Christ condescends to me. And if I keep that in perspective, I usually can navigate through these, these quagmires and these landmines a little bit easier. Um, but when I, when I get so wrapped up in my own self, that's when it's hard. But, but there, there are tools and strategies that we as caregivers, that's what we're all about at Caregivers with Hope, is helping those caregivers learn to, how to navigate these things so you don't set off those, those emotional landmines that seem to go off in these, in these high crisis moments. And I want to encourage listeners, by the way, Peter, on the heels of that exhortation, to take advantage of the website. There's a lot of great resources there. The big message, as you're hearing tonight, is you're not alone. Um, yes, it could be worse than this, so be grateful in what you have. It's a matter of your attitude, your perspective, and and as Peter, I think, very aptly mentioned, uh, uh, people don't turn nasty and cruel because they're dealing with someone that is in the important circumstance of needing requiring a caregiver it it rather amplifies that pre-existing character flaw and so to learn how to examine this through the magnifying glass of scripture and then get the right attitude the right perspective from a biblical viewpoint, from Christ's viewpoint, can be all the difference, can be very freeing for you. Information again on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. That's caregiverswithhope.com. And our thanks to Peter Rosenberger, founder of Caregivers with Hope, for being with us tonight on Lifeline. that's going to do it for this edition of lifeline thanks so much for being with us and if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend grab a copy of the lifeline podcast simply log on to kfax.com that's kfax.com for the lifeline podcast our producer is wanda sanchez i'm craig roberts till next time round remember just don't keep the faith get out there and share it and make it a great evening so long Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.